When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of We Are History. I'm John O'Farrell. And I'm Angela Barnes. Uh, it's great to be back, Angela. We broke records last week with our uh, show. Yeah, get yeah. us. Thank you, everybody. Welcome to, I think we've got a few, quite a few new listeners. So just yeah. say hello. Thanks for yeah. joining us. We really, yeah, we're happy to have you along. Welcome to our funny way of looking at the olden days. <laughs> Is that your new catchphrase, John? Ne- uh, yeah, work. Be, yeah. Well, because our old catchphrase was, we read the book so you don't have to. And we go, you've got to read this book. You've got to read yeah, this book. Yeah, that's true. So, we, yeah. And we're going to do that again today. So, we probably yeah. are. Yeah. Like, um, what are we doing? Actually, actually John, um, yes. we've started all wrong. We need to do this properly. So <clears throat> bear with me a moment. Hello. This is London and Brighton calling. Welcome to We Are History. That's right, because Angela's chosen this topic this week. We're looking at the birth of the BBC, uh, which is presumably why she tried to sound like she was auditioning for Watch With Mother there. I did my best, John. <laughs> I did my best. And it's a relevant topic because, as we're recording, it was six o'clock in the evening on Tuesday, the 14th of November, 1922, that the BBC took to the airwaves for the very first time. And that's almost 100 years ago to the day because we're recording this on Tuesday, the 15th of November, 2022. Well, yeah, it would have been better if we'd recorded it yesterday, but on the actual centenary, someone had to go and record Pointless Celebrities. Well, someone has to keep the BBC going, John, so... Oh, well done. <laughs> I, suppose you can't, I suppose you can't tell us how you got on because it's I, like not gone out yet. I can't tell you. You'll have to uh, wait and see. Yeah. Uh, but it's quite a thing, isn't it? I've done, I've done it a couple of times. And, yeah, uh, it's my second despite, time. Despite not being a celebrity, but they had me on anyway because <laughs> it was a writer's special. And um, the first time I was on, I got a pointless answer straight off the bat. Wow. And my partner, my partner got a wrong answer and I was out. Oh, that's so way, annoying. All the way to bloody Elstree. And, for one uh, round. Whole, for one, one question. And it's like, oh, see you then. But then the second time I got on, I got all the way to the final. Three questions. I thought, oh, that's, they were history questions. Hurrah! Hey! And, uh, I got, did you uh, win big? I got a one, and then I got a one, and then I got a one. Oh, uh, that's so it's like it's going, you know, it goes down yeah, like yeah, the yeah. twin tower collapsing. The thing <laughs> they do, <laughs> it's like, uh, then it's uh, yeah, down to one, but it was good drama anyway. Oh, uh, nice it's out. a good fun show to do. I can't tell yeah. you how this one went. First time I did it, um, I did it with Rich Hall, and oh, we great. went out in the second round because uh, he just got a question that was very Anglo centric. So, uh, um, but anyway, you'll have anyway. to wait and see. <laughs> Wait and see. Watch Angela on Pointless Celebrities, and she's going to be coming up on Celebrity Mastermind too. So yeah, we'll see how that goes. You've made uh, that sound like it's the sequel to Celebrity Celebrity Mastermind One. <laughs> Celebrity Mastermind <laughs> two. two. This the time return. they're even. This time they're even posher. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yes, we are plugging BBC shows, so that's fine um, yeah. because. This is a show about the BBC and the reading for this episode. See, there is a book I'm going to recommend. Very good. Um, It's called BBC A People's History by David Hendy. And it's very interesting. Um, Now, as always, we can only ever cover the tip of the iceberg in this podcast. So obviously read the book. And also we're only concentrating. He does a brilliant history of the whole of the BBC up to the present day. So it's really interesting. But we're just going to be talking today about the birth of the BBC, how it came about, the very beginnings back in 1922. And I love radio. Like, radio is my favourite medium, radio and podcasts, because I don't have to brush my hair, as John can attest to, because we are on a Zoom. Oh, my God. Um, it's a state. <laughs> not a problem I have. For <laughs> <laughs> We're recording this one oh, no. at nine o'clock in the morning, which for, a, a you know, a gigging yeah. stand-up comedian is practically in the middle of the night. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, radio is, uh, uh, radio is where I uh, started my career, of course where mm-hmm. I met my dear wife. So, um, yeah, I, I owe a lot to BBC Radio and Broadcasting House. Yeah, it's I think we both happy do, days, to be honest. Back to, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they've now demolished the building where I met my wife, but uh, the yeah. plaque's gone. <laughs> <laughs> so how did it come about, Angela? Well, we're going to go back a bit, John, as we always do. I, I want to start in 1894. That's not too bad. Not too bad, right? 
1894, the British physicist Oliver Lodge is in a lecture okay. theatre in Oxford and he sends three short pulses of a single letter S from one room to the next room without any wires, John. Not much of a message, is it? S could be anything. I might, I might have to say, my mind's going straight. What's he going to write? My mind's going straight to <laughs> shit, sod, shag. See, my mind's straight, <laughs> straight to sausages, John, but that's just yeah. how we're different, isn't it? Sadomasochistic sex party. <laughs> that would That'd have be been SM, I think. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Or it could just be the SSS and over and again, he's doing a snake noise. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, Okay, so that before, was first Morse code. So that was the first, yeah. it wasn't the first Morse code. They'd already been using Morse code. That was the first okay, wireless that... transmission. Right. So before this, okay. you had electromagnetic telegraph. So pulses were sent along wires. So Morse code right, came yeah. along sort of mid 19th century. Oliver Lodge, who sent the first message without wires. That's the important thing. I so got it. I got it. Traveled right. through the ether. And he demonstrated that electrical signals could be sent through the air and then recaptured by receiving equipment, which is something I don't think I'll ever really understand. And I am quite happy to put down to being magic. It is magic and electric. It's magic. Ele- electric ether magic. That's what radio yeah. is to me. And I'm happy with that. I, I think when, when we got beyond the yogurt cartons with pieces of string, it all got a bit technical for anyone. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm, you know, I know they have these reasons for why it works, but I'm pretty sure it's the radio, dark arts. I'll just say radio, radio waves. Just say radio Ooh. waves. It sounds like you know what you're talking about. Exactly. So then we cut, then we steps forward a young Italian man, uh, uh, Guglielmo Marconi. I did this on purpose. See, we would give each other notes for this. And, and I put bits in red that, that John can do. And I thought I'm going to let him say Marconi's name first because his first name, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Guillermo. 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 We'll just call him Marconi. Everyone knows Marconi. <laughs> it's it's all William, isn't it, that name? Guillermo. I think it is. Yeah, it looks yeah. like the Italian version of William. Right. But um, yeah, sorry, well, thanks Marconi. For that. Thanks for that. Well, he wasn't a physicist, was he? He was... Uh, no. He's basically a very talented self-promoter uh, with a wealthy family to bankroll him. And he'd been reading about all these developments. And by 1895, he'd managed to get his hands on enough equipment to send signals bouncing around his family estate in Bologna. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, being the sort of chap he was, he referred to it as my invention. And his name soon became synonymous with the wireless. Exactly. So he wasn't so much an inventor as he had a real business head and he'd watch how technology progressed and then he would buy out other people's patents or he would try to suppress or discredit any rival systems that were being developed. So from the off, he was very business minded. So within Britain, Mm -hmm. it was the general post office was in charge of all telegraphy. You know, they're sending messages down wires and that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sort of makes sense that, but I always think that's you've gone from you're in charge of delivering letters to suddenly this sort of advanced technology, a bit like, oh, okay, we're in charge of that now. A bit like putting Virgin Trains in charge of the British space programme. Yes. Which well, it sort the, of is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, that's it. It is. Yeah. Remember the beginning of computers in this country? There's the BBC computers. Yes, like, of course. They let that all yeah. go, didn't they? But there we go. So, yeah. 1900, Marconi has secured the GPO's support to send signals across Salisbury Plain. Yeah. And then the Bristol Channel. Yeah. And then the English Channel. Messages across the English Channel. It's quite something, isn't it? And then by 1901, John, he managed to get the first faint signal across the Atlantic, and it was sent from Poldew in Cornwall. And where did Marconi receive the signal from, John? I I can guess. Would it be Newfoundland, Dan? It was Signal Hill in St. John's in Newfoundland, where I've been. Here we go. It's been about three episodes since she's mentioned Newfoundland. I reckon <laughs> if, if East Germany invaded Newfoundland, Angela would explode the excitement of the podcast. <laughs> so we're in Newfoundland. Most new listeners, my family are from Newfoundland and I love it. And I in fact, I'm sat right next to a poster of Newfoundland that John can possibly see on the Zoom. There we are, pointing out. Yeah, very beautiful. There we go. <laughs> So we've got these radio signals bouncing around. Uh, how do we go from this point to point communication to like it's a big leap to broadcasting mm. to the masses then? Well, broadcasting of entertainment actually happened quite a bit earlier. It was first done through a telephone line subscription. I hadn't until I started reading more. I hadn't known about this. So it started in France in 1890, came to Britain in around 1895 and it was called Electrophone. And it was very expensive. Queen Victoria herself was a subscriber. So it's like an early sort of Netflix. Or dial a disc. Do you remember dial a disc? Yeah, dial a disc. Yeah. You probably just ring this number and they just play a bit of 
You tell kids so, that today. Imagine telling the kids you had to go to a phone box, ring this number, and they played you a little bit of a song from the charts. It's like, <laughs> we did it as well. God, we were short of entertainment back then. <laughs> so to pick up the programmes, multiple large carbon microphones were placed in the theatre footlights to pick up sounds of the performers or in churches, if you're a bit more boring. Microphones mm-hmm. were disguised to look similar to Bibles. That's funny. Yeah. Um, and then... Um, Home subscribers were issued headphones uh, that con- connected to standard telephone lines. And that was that was how they got their entertainment. Exactly. The annual charge was five pounds and they had them also had them in hotels. So you could pay sixpence to listen for a little bit. So a bit like dial a disc there, I guess. And they also had them in hospitals for those convalescing. So like early hospital radio, really. I believe that's where Tony Blackburn started out. Oh, poor uh, Tony Blackburn. Sorry, Tony. I love you, I was, Tony. I couldn't He was actually, it. did you see him on the, did you watch that programme the BBC just did about 100 years of the BBC? I haven't he, seen it yet, no. Oh, he, was, he was on Radio Caroline and then yeah. the BBC were going to launch Radio 1. So he goes into Broadcasting House for an interview and he said, the first thing they said to me was, which, which school did you go to? And he said, wow. I, went, I, I went to Millfield, which is a really posh private school. He went, oh, very good school, very good school. And he got the job. It's like a Radio what? One DJ. Sorry. Well, we'll we'll I, see I, as well later on. We'll see. I mean, yeah, yeah how how posh boys get jobs in this new medium. We'll come yeah. on to that. Um, so so for this electrophone, it didn't really take on for the masses, obviously, because it's very expensive, and you needed a line for this stuff to go down. It wasn't just coming to people through the ether to a yes receiver. This is like difference between dial-up internet and wireless, basically. Yeah, yeah. So Marconi's managed to send these signals wirelessly. Um, but they're signals, they're exactly that. They're Morse code, uh, you know, pulses right. and whatever. And it yeah. was a Canadian inventor called Reginald Fessenden, okay. who he managed to achieve the first speech radio transmission in 1900. Okay. And then wireless radio sort of began, the broadcast began ha- happening ad hoc all over the world from around 1905. So Fessenden claims to have made the first broadcast of music and entertainment in 1906 by playing Oh Holy Night on his violin and some other Christmas music. Lucky, lucky listeners. Yeah, so sounds an great. Violinist. Great. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but I mean, amateur radio enthusiasts began dabbing all over the place, putting cables mm. and wires and valves together in their sheds, eavesdropping all the messages that were flying through the air. Mm. And they became known as listeners in. Um, yeah, because the messages they picked out weren't intended for them, of course. Exactly. They weren't broadcast in the sense that there are now that people are supposed to pick them up. It was just people listening into radio communications. Right. I remember my friend's dad, when I was a kid, used to listen to the police scanner. Do you remember that? It was like a thing. Like we used to do that. And I, I remember going around there on a Friday night for my tea and he'd be like, oh, it's all kicking off on Week Street. In Mason. Like, <laughs> what are you then doing? Then we used to go, it was right up at 104, 105 FM. Yeah. Yeah, a bit of a disturbance down at the King's Arms, uh, just uh, checking it out. And it's like, you'd hear them making stupid mistakes. So they go, no, not that King's Arms, it means the other one over there. (laughs) They're going to the wrong place. You're sitting there powerless. So that's what these radio enthusiasts basically were. It's illegal to listen to the place. Yeah, so that's sort of what they were doing. Military communication, obviously, was the primary use for this technology in the early 20th century, and particularly at sea. And the, the Marconi company was so, um, of course, yeah. they encouraged this. So they had this publication called Wireless World to sort of promote their yeah. own company, really. And what they did, they filled it with all these horror stories of terror at sea. Because in 1912, obviously, you had the Titanic happened. Oh, God, and, yeah. And so they would fill their magazine with all these stories to, to sort of scare people into buying their radio equipment for safe navigation. <laughs> Wow, yeah. So, so that's course... what the, the primary use for it was. And and at this point, there was no sort of idea of using it in the way that we do now. But then, of course, in 1914, World War One starts and uh, the military take control of all, all wireless activity. Yeah. Uh, so and it is mainly just, things. you know, it's just sending messages um, wirelessly. Yeah. And then... But during the war, the role of wireless starts to shift. So it's just a communication, a way of communicating military messages. Yeah. And then it starts to get used for propaganda. So within a few years of this technology being available, it starts getting used to spread disinformation. And I think what really surprised me about this is it's used to spread disinformation before it was ever used to spread information for the masses. That's amazing. I see normally when you get a new technology, it's either yeah. used to sp- spread fake news or porn. 
So yeah, it's like photography, two. naked ladies, video yeah. recorders, porn, internet, where you get the pattern. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but I think usually what happens is it starts off with this sort of, uh, you know, it, like Twitter, for example, started off as a way to communicate and then gets misused. Yeah. Whereas yeah, yeah. it was the other way around, really, here. The, mis- the, the Using it for entertainment came out of it being misused. That's what gave them the idea. Right. That's so, because, of, uh, because of wartime, I suppose. Yeah. So Germany yeah. had these powerful transmitters on its territory, and they would broadcast this news service throughout the world several times a day to wow. spread this disinformation. And then these stations in New Jersey, New York. So this is what I mean. These things were happening ad hoc across the world yeah. before we you know, had... Uh, transmissions here so there was starting to be these radio stations popping up in um in america but with very ad hoc and no sort of um what's the word uh structure to it really so what would happen these stations in new jersey new york their receivers would pick up these german broadcasts and then they would pass them to their news agencies across america so these german versions of events would appear in their newspapers and stuff that's so interesting because, uh, yeah, so yeah. The, the, the news wasn't verified at all. It was just we've heard this on this thing and we're going to put it straight well, into because the paper. It wasn't, it wasn't a news service. It wasn't people at home picking it up with their – do you see right. what I mean? It was just – they were just broadcasting misinformation so these amateurs who might have the equipment would just pick yeah. it up. It wasn't – there wasn't radio news services. No, of course not. But even later yeah. on from that pro- that programme I watched about the history of the BBC, the, where the BBC would not put out a news story when they were starting their news reports unless they had two separate verifications. Mm. So if there was a coup in Sierra Leone or somewhere, they, would, they have the BBC man there saying there's been a coup and they're going, well, we're going to have to verify that. It's like, well, Sierra Leone, there are loads of people here. And then he was also working for Reuters. And so he'd put the story out to Reuters and they go, OK, we've had it confirmed by Reuters. And so we're going to run the story now. It's, like, it's the same bloke, mate. It's the same bloke <laughs> giving the story twice. But they wouldn't um, they wouldn't verify news. But these these guys yeah. in America were just putting any old thing in the paper just because uh, they'd heard. Well, they it were just picking up. Sig- they thought they were just picking up messages and they but they were obviously yeah. information. So fake news. Um, it fake wasn't. News. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Um, So in response to this, a neutral press committee was set up um, to coordinate this sort of transmission of of friendly news to overseas wireless agencies and stations to make sure that the information they were getting was, you know, right. Reliable, yeah. I say reliable or maybe just, you know, propaganda from the other side. (laughs) We balance both sides out, yeah. Yeah. So you Um, had this wireless press service and it was a man called Arthur Burroughs who ran this service. Now, remember that name. It's very important. Arthur Burroughs. Easy names like Arthur (laughs) Burroughs. I get Guillermo, Guillermo, I can't even say it. (laughs) Sorry to any Italian listeners. We we apologise. And so he's listening in to all these electronic messages that are flying around the world. And then he starts to see this potential of wireless communication as a way of spreading information rather than just disinformation. Yeah. So what Marconi himself, he was really only focused at this this point. He was on the the point-to-point communication as the military yeah. were is that right yeah that's right he 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 wasn't sort of foreseeing this grand potential. broadcasting yeah. potential at all yeah. um and in fact you know the fact that people were a, able to receive these wireless signals with their equipment they'd knocked up in their shed that that was seen as a flaw in the system you know that was a loophole okay. that needed closing oh, okay. because we're, you know if you're sending military information across the airwaves you don't want some bloke in his shed in pinner Picking it up, you know. So Pinner is the right. I don't know why Pinner pumped into my head then, but it did. Um, (laughs) But so he didn't see that he wasn't looking at the potential for, you know, the fact that a lot of people being able to tune in could be a good thing. At that point, that was seen as the flaw in the system. I see. Um, And so in the magazine Wireless World, this Marconi's company's magazine, in 1917, when this propaganda is going during the war, sort of going crazy everywhere. Um, The magazine reported that it needed to be countered by saturating the ether with, and I quote, truth ions. It sounds like a great magazine, Angela. (laughs) Saturating the ether with truth ions sounds more like something um, Donald Trump would have come up with, I have to say. Yeah, it's quite quite a strange (laughs) statement. But anyway, so so with people working within Marconi, Arthur Burroughs being one of them, this idea of broadcasting was beginning to come about, even though Marconi himself hadn't really seen that potential and he noticed that 
for these propaganda purposes, messages to be spread far and wide, they needed to be received by many people, not just these individuals, you know, yeah. that happened to have the equipment. And so he started to see, well, what if this, rather than spending propaganda and disinformation, could this be used for good, for reaching people with positive messages of education or enlightenment or peace, you know? Yeah. So Burroughs, like many people, um, he'd come out of the war a pacifist, hadn't he? And he, uh, he stayed at the Marconi Company because he wanted to promote the idea of using the technology for improving, enriching the lives of civilians rather than just for, for the military, which seems like an optimistic sort of yeah. Exactly. So he knew that, um, you know, to make this happen, obviously, for wireless to be accessible to everyone, the technology that Fessenden had started had to be developed. So radio signals weren't just dots and dashes that needed interpreting. You wanted the voice itself to be widely transmitted. And, and while he was doing this work at the wireless press service, Burroughs, he would occasionally pick up voices wafting out of Berlin or America. So it was happening in other places. And I think right. that's the thing across the world. I know in Australia it was happening as well. So it wasn't just in one place that this technology was developing and growing. It was doing it at different speeds in different places across wow. the world. Exciting time, really, to be in the forefront yeah. of it. And yeah. And in England, in England, you had to have a GPO license to transmit as well as receive wireless. Is that right? That's right. So these little clubs were started for these bona fide experimenters, these amateurs who wanted to play yeah. with this new way of communicating. But they, like Marconi, would probably have scoffed at Burroughs because they were like, they, they didn't really see the potential for this broad appeal and creativity. They had their little clubs and they were the radio amateurs and they were the listeners yeah. in and they were, you know. This is our thing. Yeah, it's our thing, not yours. This is not for the ordinary people, yeah. Exactly, so, um, a typical sort of nerd attitude, you know. Yeah, you it's, can't, like no. C, it's like CB radio when it started. So yeah. Lingo and it's like a little club they're in. But it's like any sort of, yeah, there's any yeah. sort of like nerdy little hobby you've got. You yeah, yeah. appeal to but the masses. Else, exactly. So yeah. it's 1919 and uh, the war is over. Burroughs uh, is heading the Marconi's company um, publicity and demonstration department he's in charge of. And they yeah. they opened a new transmitter in Chelmsford. Dun, dun, dun. So romantic, Chelmsford. In yeah. spring 1920, um, over the course of 10 days, they radiated. That's oh, what they call okay. it, radiated. <laughs> mm, see where this is going. Two daily half-hour programmes with news and vocal and instrumental selections. Wow, could, and, have, been the, uh, could have been the British Radiating Corporation. <laughs> it could have been. So these, <laughs> these broadcasts um, were sort of test broadcasts and they've been picked up clearly on ships a thousand miles away, which is quite exciting. Yeah. And also they had 400 of these experimenters, these, these sort of amateurs, these little wow. wireless so nerds across Britain picking up these test broadcast so it's, it's sort of happening it's sort of happening you know without anyone quite understanding how it's heading where it's heading and you yeah know, it's just developing really fast three months later they got Nellie Melba who's not a type of yogurt uh in front of the milk microphone and she was a uh singer I think yeah and uh recited three short pieces uh the first of a series of demonstration concerts that went on uh right through till 1920. Yeah so all this is starting to happen with the Marconi company are doing these experiments with sort of wireless is entertainment and gpo is getting a bit nervous you know remember they're in charge of all the licensing yeah. and everything yeah. and they're a little bit nervous about anything frivolous that's interfering with military signals so they were very tight with their licenses and they would only issue them temporarily so chelmsford did this in 1920 and then they had to stop transmitting they only had a temporary license right. to do it but they'd done enough for people to notice, for the press to notice what was happening yeah. and for the amateurs to start revising their snobby opinions of broadcasting for the masses so yeah, to change. absolutely. So in December 2021, there were 63 different amateur wireless clubs who petitioned the post office for a new service of speech and even music. Wow. Is this yeah. how uh, Magic Mellow FM got going? Absolutely. Hmm, it's your favourite station, that, John, isn't it? Mid <laughs> Mellow I Magic. Say, really I say, I, what was it? My, uh, Mellow Magic, I think, is a radio station where every song could be the first dance at an unimaginative wedding. That's my. Um, <laughs> my kids take the mic out of me. So, Dad, the car, Dad left the car on Mellow Magic. Oh, it was just that. It was something very loud on 6 FM. Yeah, I just, well, it's just yeah. I, I sometimes put it on if I'm driving home late at night after a gig. Yeah. I find, because it's all those sort of power ballads. 
Yeah, yeah. I, that keeps me awake if I'm driving late. I'm just banging out a few power ballads. I'm with you, John. I'm I'm a mellow magic apologist myself. So, oh so we're back to Marconi. So back to Marconi, whose fault it all is. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, so within Marconi, Burroughs is now really lobbying for this whole new concept for the wireless. He yep. wrote in a confidential memo that this radiation of news and entertainment to a civilian audience was the way that they should focus their business and that there was opportunities here. There's an opportunity to levy a hiring charge on all these new listeners. Right. And he was wanted to promote the idea of broadcasting for peaceful rather than military and governmental purposes. Yeah, exactly. And and, laudable of of, of Mr. Burroughs. Yeah. And also seeing, you know, that that's the way this, the Marconi business could be redirected maybe. Um, so in February 1922, Marconi gets permission for the post office to open another new station at Rittle, which is just a few miles from Chelsford. Right. And they have this um, sort of small hut of engineers just tinkling with the equipment in the day. And then in the evening, they would put on these performances. And then so these but, wireless clubs, right. anyone who had the receiving of equipment could tune in. Right. So at precisely eight o'clock each evening, the engineers would begin their transmissions by announcing the station call sign to to MT. Hello, CQ. Hello, CQ. This is two Emma Tock Rittle calling. And then yeah. they play some gramophone records. That's right. And what I love about this, like as time went on, they were just mucking about, really. You know, there weren't structured programs. And it was just these engineers and anyone else who joined in. And so they'd get a bit more spontaneous. They'd start popping a few gags in. And they even did a night of grand opera where it was the chief engineer sang all the arias. Oh, God, and yeah. It feels a little bit like, you know, when kids go, Mummy, Daddy, I'm, I'm, I've, written, I've done a play. I want you to watch it. They were just mucking about. <laughs> yeah. People were but tuning talk- in, listening to it. I think it's great. Yeah. But that's when, when, uh, uh, when Tony Blackburn went to the BBC for his first Radio 1 thing. They said, where's your script? He goes, uh, Dad, don't have a script there, mate. Uh, what a fantastic <laughs> uh, rock sound we're going to have here. And he's going, well, could you write up a script? Because Alan Freeman's script said, says, not half, woof, woof, <laughs> evening pop pickers. And so this, this really was the beginning of all that just DJs that making up of, shit. Yeah, just that yeah. kind of mucking about on air. You know, this was yeah. the first zoo radio, really. It was before oh, any other sort of radio. I love it. But Burroughs was sort of listening into what's going on. Because obviously it's all done under the Marconi back. Yeah. And he started to think, okay, they're getting a bit carried away now with what he called their spirit of farce and foolishness. Yeah, quite. Okay. Yeah, he wanted to formalise it and have schedules of evening concerts and advance advertising of what was coming up and, and make arrangements with record companies and all that. That's right. So his department then has a second transmitter installed um, from the top floor of Marconi House itself. Right. And this new London station would have less music, more scripted talk. And it was called 2LO. That was the name of okay. the transmitter. Wow. And by the middle of 1922, this all began to get momentum. Um, regular programmes were coming out that anyone within 100 miles or so could pick up if they had the right equipment. Um, and then every now and then they'd try something new. They'd put on a bedtime story for the kids or they'd commentate on a boxing match, things like wow. that. And thousands of people were starting to tune in, weren't they? And then yeah. and businesses getting in on the act, selling domestic receivers. Yeah, exactly. So you had two other big companies alongside Marconi. You have Metropolitan Vickers and Western Electric, who were preparing to launch their own stations in Manchester and London as well. Yeah. So supply creating demand, more that became yeah. available and accessible, more people tuned in. That's right. And like I said before, this wasn't just happening in Britain. This technology started being used this way all over the world. And in the US... Newspapers and companies like General Electric and Westinghouse were installing these radio phone stations in every city and putting on daily programs of gramophone concerts, opera, even church sermons, obviously. <laughs> America. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the, the business opportunities weren't just in selling transmitters and receivers, but also selling airtime for advertising in America. Right. Yeah. But radio was, was sort of still seen as this almost utopian idea, Ooh. instantaneous collective communication. I mean, radical idea, really, mm. um, bringing happiness to people en masse at the same time. Yeah, it's it's sort of so hard for us when we've been born into a world where it already exists. Yes. To imagine that, you know, there was no way of getting stuff to the masses, like you say, at the same time, en masse, in yeah. you know, your newspapers, people would read them when they read them and individually and not together. And yeah. it was the first time this whole idea. Yeah. So and, and in Britain, 
they were recovering from the horrors of World War One, so they embraced yeah. these positive ideals. And in the summer of 1922, a new magazine came out called The Broadcaster, and yeah. it had this front cover with just this scene of domestic bliss. It's a well-dressed family sitting together, smiling, listening to the wireless. And inside, there was a picture of a couple dreamily listening to the wireless on a boat, people dancing to music on a passenger plane. Dodgy. Yeah, wearing miniature radio sets as wristwatches, John. Well, they said they've foreseen everything here. They they've have. Got, they're racing ahead to the, uh, the, uh, the, um, the Apple iWatch or whatever. Yeah, exactly. The so, Apple uh, iWatch. All right, Granddad. <laughs> it's called the Apple iWatch thingamajig. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, so the term wireless amateurs, which is what listeners had been, you know, people with the receiving yeah. equipment had been called, felt too specialised. So now people that listened in were called etherites. Oh, that's catchy. Because it goes through the ether. So anyone could be an etherite. Right. Imagine, that didn't catch on, did it? Imagine talking no. about your, your etherite figures for your radio programme. Oh, your yeah, podcast. What are yeah. etherite downloads? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I quite like it. So it's this <laughs> idea of ideas moving through the ether. And it was so attractive. Uh, and of course, they couldn't have known it would end up with quote unquote. Ends but in tragedy. Mind. Ends yeah. in tragedy with you and yours. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> Burroughs, however, was aware that there was the potential for the airwaves to become the sort of wild west. Uh, he'd seen disinformation spreading uh, during World War One, and he also saw what was happening in the US uh, in the 20s. Yeah, the beginning of May 1922, the US had 219 registered radio stations and then a month later there were 318 wow. so there was this talk of there was a problem of jumbling of signals and this chaos in the ether as they called it it was yeah. wild west out there yeah. so burrows thought you know in a smaller and more densely populated country like britain these problems are going to be even more of an issue yeah. so he spoke to his managing director and he persuaded him that there needed to be some sort of public service arrangement with some sort of government direction and right. the GPO was feeling the same way. This needed to be regulated in, in some way. So it didn't right. have the problems America had. Yeah, the war had sort of shown how effective centralising the administrative controls of utilities could be, you know, with health, food, coal and all that. Mm. But uh, it was now it was a question of how would the oversight take place? The GPO was clear that it didn't really want to take direct responsibility for it itself. It's a massive job. Yeah, exactly. And also it would be that they're issuing the licenses so are they you know it's all so yeah. over the summer of 1922 there's a series of meeting with the gpo the imperial communications committee who represented oh, yeah. the armed services and all these various private radio companies and they right. agreed that there should be some sort of organized radio service of music and educational talks that advertising should be prohibited and right. that clashing of wavelengths needed to be avoided so they were the main and yeah. they thought there could be several stations around the country to reach more people. Um, but there would need to be an agency that ensured the various stations didn't interfere with each other. So cooperation would prevent a commercial monopoly. Mm -hmm. And the GPO favoured forming one company for the purpose of doing their broadcasting. So <laughs> on Wednesday, the 18th of October 1922, a consortium was formed to be licensed by yeah. the GPO and open not just to the six largest firms who were the ones who provided this initial capital of £100,000, which quite a lot of money in 1922. Back then, yeah. yeah. Uh, but to every bona fide radio manufacturer in the country that was willing to pay a pound for an ordinary share. So right. all of these radio companies would come under this... Yeah, and operational costs will be met from half of the 10 shilling licence fee that the GPO yeah. levied on all owners of domestic receivers. Plus, to begin with, a modest royalty on the sale of sets. That's right. And this what was it company called, job was to be called the British Broadcasting Company, or the BBC for short. That dun, might dun, be a dun. good time to take a break. I think so. And also, you've just seen the TV licensed detective van outside, haven't you? You've got to turn off your lights and sit behind the sofa for a bit. Oh, it just takes me back. <laughs> we'll see, see you after, after these ads. We are back and we're talking about how the BBC was born, but the C stood for something else back then. Tell us all about it, Angela Barnes. It did it was the british broadcasting company so on the friday before the bbc was formally created a newspaper 
have advertised the first few vacancies for senior roles at this exciting new company. Right. Um, now, our pal Arthur Burroughs, he probably knew more about broadcasting and how this was all going to work than anyone else in the country. So he was given the post director of programmes. Okay. They acquired this transmitter in the Strand from the Marconi company. So the 2LO, which we mentioned earlier right. where they were doing their test ones for, um, which was the reason it was called 2LO was it was the number um, that the post office broadcasting license issued to Marconi. It was the number of that license. Uh, yeah. And I believe that transmitter is, can be seen at the Science Museum today. There you go. TLO. 2LO. 2LO. They did uh, Mr. Blue Sky, didn't they? Yes, John. Okay. Yes. Yes. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh dear! Um, oh, we're we're just going to skate over that. <laughs> so Arthur uh, Burroughs, Arthur yes, Burrows, yeah, yeah. So it was him who, on fourteenth of November, nineteen twenty-two, at six p.m., took to the airwaves for the first time under this umbrella. He put now. Come on, John, you do this part on your best BBC voice. Hello, hello, two hello calling, two hello calling. This is the British Broadcasting Company, two LO. Stand by for one minute, please. How was that? So then that was beautiful, John. So he said that there's a short pause. And then after the pause, he reads this short news bulletin and the weather forecast. And then this is what I love. He reads them again, but slower so that people can take <laughs> notes. Not, not, Isn't not, that not, lovely? That's not like in the local news in your area. You just know, sorry, local weather in your area. Yeah, I was looking at that bit on the map anyway, mate. I don't need <laughs> the local news. I can well, I just like this idea that, that people are taking notes on it. And and it reminds me of I listened to this thing. Um, so regular listeners will know that I um, uh, am a not very good German speaker, but I'm trying to get be better. And so um, I listened. There's this website called News in Slow German, <laughs> which is. I listened to. And it's um, yeah, it's great because they just say it really slowly so that I can understand it. Um, oh so now so there were no journalists at 2LO so right. Burroughs script was sort of cobbled together from various news agency wires right that was the first ever broadcast under the BBC umbrella and they chose November 1922 for a reason because there's a general election isn't there the following day in fact and yes. uh, Burroughs wanted the BBC up and running time to transmit the results that's right and Crucially, it wasn't just in London. So the broadcast the following day, this this initial broadcast was from London on the 14th. But the next day, on the day of the election, as people were hitting the polls, yeah. the broadcasts were heard by thousands more listeners who were listening to, you had Western Electric's 5IT in Birmingham and Metropolitan right. Vickers 2ZY just outside Manchester. And uh, apparently the, the Birmingham one, in the days leading up to the launch, the fog had been so bad in Birmingham the engineers at 5IT nearly fell off the roof just getting the transmitter up. Blimey. So all of these yeah. stations, uh, along with a thousand commercial wireless manufacturers, were now operating under the banner of the British Broadcasting Company. Yeah. And it was this defining moment in the history of broadcasting, but nobody at the time really noticed. Yeah. It's a bit like birth of Elvis Presley or something. And, you know, until he's famous, it's not a big deal. No, his exactly. Mum, his mum would have noticed. His mum might have noticed, yeah. yeah, yeah. But as it, the total number li of listeners was in the tens of thousands rather than the millions. And there was hardly any mention of it in the press. That's what surprised me. I thought it would right. be launched with a big fanfare, but it was only the Times who announced it. And they announced it on an inside page of their Tuesday edition. And it said, preliminary broadcasting will be authorised from Marconi House this evening. And they put the word broadcasting in inverted commas. Oh, my God, inverted commas. Any, anyone in the public eye on, <laughs> or on Twitter knows how damning an inverted comma can be. Yeah. Inverted commas. Com comedian and yeah. love oh, All the time. Commas. All the time. So They're it called was... comedy writer John O'Farrell. Yeah. Oh, the damning ah. inverted commas. Yeah. So it was the uh. broadcasting will be all <laughs> And that was the only mention of it, this one line in the in the Times. Yeah. So soon after these first broadcasts, um, Burroughs was joined at the BBC by a deputy a man called Cecil Lewis. Yeah, Cecil Lewis is quite That's an interesting guy. He'd been a World War I flying ace, good-looking, six foot four, married to the glamorous daughter of an exiled white Russian general. Uh, but wow. he'd been deeply affected by what he saw in the war. He was only 16 when war broke out, and he'd been fascinated with aeroplanes, which obviously were a very new thing when World War I broke out. And by April yeah. 2016, just 18 years old, he'd only had 24 hours of flight experience. Suddenly he finds himself in France flying reconnaissance patrols for the Royal Flying Corps. 
Blimey. So life expectancy yeah. was pretty short for pilots like him. And yeah. he'd been shot down, but he survived, is that right? Yeah. And um Well, yeah, obviously he survived, John. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he died, yeah. and then I, I don't know, know why I brought him up, really. <laughs> oh, I meant to... <laughs> All right. All right, comedian Angela Barnes. <laughs> As the war went on, he became very uneasy about what he witnessed from his cockpit and looking down over the River Somme. He became aware of the sort of, you know, the horrible futility of it all. Mm. So when the war ended, he was only 21. He didn't know what to do with himself. A fighter pilot. He knew nothing else as an adult. To begin with, um, he did what any young man of that age would do. Parted hard, but eventually yeah. went to China to work for an engineering company called Metropolitan Vickers, training their pilots. Yes, and while he was there, he was mixing with these British expats and he found them just distasteful. He spent their days playing bridge and feeling superior to everyone else. I can't imagine expats behaving that way <sighs> oh, today. Reading a Sunday but, um, Telegraph. Yeah. <laughs> so he came home just feeling like he wanted to be part of something that had purpose. I think it had really affected him and yeah. and something that affected change. And, and he had a friend from his days in China who told him about what was happening in America in the world of broadcasting. So he was sort of watching what was going on. And this appealed to Cecil, this way of improving lives of people in his battle-scarred country. So that's right. what led him to apply for the post in this exciting new project when he saw it advertised. Ah, uh, the days in the middle-class men, you could just apply for a job you fancied, regardless <laughs> of whether you had any experience in the field. You didn't have a media studies degree, Angela. I know, right. I, and I do find that... The, these sort of men that started the BBC, they just wondered, obviously they've got no experience, it's a new thing, but you could just, if you went to the right school, it didn't matter, you'd learn. No, like, um, yeah, but like uh, Tony Blackburn. Go to yeah, <laughs> mad. So, so, John, we seem to have got a fair way into the second section of a podcast about the history of the BBC, and we haven't even once mentioned the name of the person that everyone thinks of when they think of the BBC. Terry Wogan. No. Oh, Melvin Bragg. No. Mr Blobby. Yeah, no. No, John, <laughs> no, it's John Reith. Oh, um, yes. We all know John Reith, who a month after that initial broadcast, he joins as the general manager, the man in charge. So a bit of background on him. He was a Scotsman, quite imposing, even taller than Cecil Lewis. He was six foot six, John. John wow. Reith. And he had a scar on his face where he'd been shot right. in the war. Yeah. So quite yeah. an imposing figure yeah, of a man, Yeah, I but think. very much about the sort of, here's Mr. BBC back in those early days. Oh, so yeah. Actually, back in the 80s and 90s, I played for a BBC football team and we called ourselves Reith Rovers. So, ah, um, brilliant. But uh, he was a pompous, humorous man by all accounts, been brought up very strictly religious uh, upbringing in Glasgow. His father was a local minister of the Free Church of Scotland. He had a deep suspicion of art and culture, so perfect for the BBC. Perfect for the BBC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, a uh, very Victorian sense of paternalism in him. This idea that the rough culture of the plebs, drinking, gambling, etc., needed to be replaced with improving activities. Yeah, apparently, and he's like he'd wanted to study classics or philosophy, but his father had insisted he train as a mechanical engineer, and right. he took comfort in religion. It sounds like he had a very sad youth, from what I've read about him. Okay. Quite lonely, didn't really have any friends, but he right. had this sort of sense of. Quite a, an elevated sense of superiority, I think, in himself. And he took right. comfort in religion, but he felt he had this God-given destiny to lead men. Okay. And um, he was 25 when war broke out, but he was fighting on the Western Front in 1915 when he was shot and the wound was bad enough to get him evacuated to London. And he was ashamed of being injured out of the war. He confessed to having enjoyed the war. He liked the feeling of purpose it gave him. Um and and yeah, yeah, being injured out for him was a sort of shameful thing. Right. So yes, in 1916, he got a job at uh, the Remington Gun Factory in the uh, in the US that supplied the British Army, where he was tasked with speeding up production without loss of quality. And he mostly did this by getting rid of anyone that agitated for better conditions or asked for a pay rise. And he admitted he enjoyed doing that. Yes, indeed. Comes back, comes back to Britain. Yeah, returns to Britain 1917, becomes general manager at Beardmore, which is a large engineering firm in Coatbridge, just outside Glasgow. And shop stewards were closely monitored, John. Employees who oh. failed to clock in were dismissed. Because industry at this time, we're talking 1917, industrialists yeah. and employers are terrified because the Russian Revolution's happening. Yeah. They had a workforce brutalized by this conflict, returning home, and they're not quite finding this land fit for heroes that Lloyd George had promised them. Yeah, and to top it all, yeah. 1918 Representation of the People Act had given these plebs a vote. That's right. So Reef made it his business to root out what he called these this disruptive communistic activity with quite a brutal 
efficiency because they were terrified right. of revolts here. Right in the place of, you know, agitation and politics, he Ooh. organised canteen concerts, lectures, football matches for staff, presumably thinking that entertaining them would stop them rising up, I guess. Yeah, which I guess it probably did in a way, um, <laughs> yes. which is, yeah, just keep them entertained. Don't let them see what's happening in Russia. Just give them some music yes. to listen to. They'll be happy over there. Um he suffered with his mental health, as did many people returning from the war. Uh, he was one of 58,000 ex-servicemen who received a ministry pension for neurasthenia, uh, which was, uh-huh. didn't really mean anything. It was his catch-all term for all the mental health problems that the returning soldiers had. So right. what we'd call PTSD now, and it took many different right. forms. Right. In 1922, he left Coatbridge and headed to London with ambitions to go into politics, dallied with the Liberals then thought he might be a socialist, eventually allied with the Conservatives against the Labour menace. Yeah, that's what they call you, isn't it, John? Labour menace. So. Not, <laughs> not so much. He didn't really care about the political differences within the parties, I don't think. He was more concerned with whether they had Christian values and where he could make his mark, which sounds like a bloody perfect politician. Yeah, absolutely. Um, then he saw a job advertised in the Morning Post. A general manager was required. Only applicants having first-class qualifications need apply. And yep. two months and one short interview later, he was general manager of the newly formed BBC. That's insane, isn't it? You can actually, yeah. I actually saw on Twitter recently his um, letter of application for this job. It's just him saying, well, I think I'd be very good at it. So I'll expect an interview. Uh, I'll see if I can uh, find it again, retweet it out. Wow. Uh, it's insane. But these are the men in charge of the BBC. And Reith himself was uh, pretty surprised that there were no directives from above. It was just down to them to make this thing happen. Yeah. Um, what they were doing was like completely unprecedented. And they had no idea where it was leading. It's just like, well, it's well, just, to, just learn on the job, you know. Yeah, well, it led to EastEnders, House of Games and Mrs. Brown's Boys, John. So it has a lot to answer for, but there's some good stuff. Um, <laughs> Cecil Lewis himself, the borough's deputy, he said, it felt like some, this is a quote from him. It felt right. like somebody had given us a tiger and we were obliged to ride this tiger down Piccadilly. We didn't know where the hell it was going and what damage the tiger might do. That's a good image, good image. <laughs> uh, so to begin with, they were based at Magnet House, which was one room and an antechamber at the General Electric Company just off Kingsway in London, which wasn't ideal. No, for each of the broadcasts they did, Lewis and Burroughs and their colleagues would have to run from Magnet House down to the first floor of Marconi House on Aldwych. Um, which you don't know, like it's not far from. I used to work around that yeah, way, Kingsway, yeah. um, but they had a small box room and been kitted out with a piano and a microphone. And a microphone in those days was a massive, yeah. big box. And by all accounts, I, I was reading a thing about it the other day that performers were terrified of it, and they would get like microphone fright instead wow. of stage fright because this. Oh. So they sort of dressed it, and they covered it in fabric and tried to make it look pretty yeah, and less and scary. People called it the meat locker. They said it looked like an old-fashioned meat locker, which is precursor to a fridge, you know. It's funny because I use a microphone, you know, almost daily in my job. Yeah. But I forgot the first time I ever used a microphone, when somebody puts something in front of you that amplifies your voice, it is... It's quite scary. It's quite... Yeah, yeah. You feel you, you whack a, a microphone under someone's nose on the street or in an audience yeah. or whatever. They do sort of recoil from it and because they're so part of our daily lives now. And yeah. I suppose less so now everyone's got a microphone because everyone's got a podcast, you know, but... Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's there's can, other I, podcasts? Yeah. <laughs> no, there aren't not any. the only one. Yeah, delete all the others from your feed. This is the only one you need. Well, anyway, <laughs> we're, in, we're in spring 1923. The British Broadcasting Company moved back to its premises to Savoy Hill, which is a proper base. Uh, they were in what they call the backside of the uh, Institute of Electronic Engineers headquarters. And there was a stink from the river, rats in the skirting boards and a mosquito problem. But apparently it had a charm to it. It did. And it feels like it was quite um, a, a sort of interesting place, to, like exciting place to work with this new. And they had, the, do you remember the, um, when we talked about Rittle just now and the, yeah. the the people putting out the broadcast just mucking about? Yeah. And Peter Eckersley, who was the guy who'd sung all the operas, uh, yeah. Arias, he was the technical wizard there. And he was now here as BBC's chief engineer. So I really like it that those people that were just sort of mucking about with this new form of, they're there. They're right there at the beginning of the BBC doing it. Right. Um, Burroughs and Lewis shared a room as the chief programme makers within uh, Savoy Hill. But Reef has secured himself a nice, plush, managerial corridor in the West Wing. His oh, yes. thickly carpeted room separated from the surrounding hubbub by a heavy glazed swing door. And here he had a dedicated telephone switchboard operator and his own private waitress. Private waitress. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
things like that. But, but despite yeah. the despite uh, the first broadcast being a news bulletin, Burroughs and Lewis wanted it to be primarily an entertainment medium. The whole idea was to bring happiness and entertainment to the masses. So we're, we're heading yeah. towards the sort of uh, the ethos of the BBC. That's right. Lewis said, I don't really care what was happening in Abyssinia. He said, okay. what I was up to, that was interesting. And that meant drama, a new artist or a big show or a big concert. It was this post-war idea of... Yeah, idealism. You know, uh, yeah, exactly. And at first the output wasn't unlike those people mucking about at Whittle. Um, there were sketches and skits, there were short scenes from plays, musical recitals, lectures. And right from the off, there was programming for kids. Wow, the children's programming started out in Manchester, didn't it, before it came Yeah, to yeah. And then you get Children's Hour, um, where it was Burroughs himself would play Uncle Arthur and Cecil Lewis was Uncle Caractacus. Do you remember Children's Hour, John? <laughs> yeah, well, I was around at this point, of course. Yeah, I have to say, this puts me in mind, when I was very uh, new to uh, uh, comedy writing, we worked on this show called Peter Dixon's Nightcap, which is on at like 11 o'clock at night on a Friday night on BBC Two. And we came up with this idea called Dial a Sketch. And uh, people would phone in the land, phone in the landlines and we'd pick up the, the uh, things and they'd suggest sketch ideas. And then live during that show we would write that sketch up and perform it ourselves at the end of the show and we thought this was pretty impressive that we turned around the sketch in an hour and did it ourselves but then one week when i was away on holiday i tuned in from france to listen to this and i thought oh, this is terrible yeah. this, is just, this is just some writers mucking about and it's writers, yeah yeah, yeah. It's and it's, like, it's sort of it's uh, excuse my phrasing what, but it's basically masturbation right that wasn't well, no. for the audience was it that was the writers going we're yeah. doing this bit for us. <laughs> yeah, we just, I mean, you know, it's like just uh, there's a couple of people in the background laughing. Peter Dixon doing his best to laugh. But that's what this was, really. They just put on stunts outside broadcasts, which must have been like yeah, massive feats of lumbering big old bits of equipment. Yeah, I think the face. stunts were a bit more. Um, so the stunts yeah. are what they called OBs, we call them oh, now, outside okay. broadcasts. Okay. So they were, um, yeah, they would go to... Covent Garden Opera House with these massive bits of equipment. They broadcast magic the flute, magic they did, flute. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So the BBC grew and grew. And interestingly, its workforce obviously ended up with a lot of ex-servicemen. Yeah. Straight after World War One, And people who just wanted something positive come out of this awful time the country had been through. Yeah. And the building they were in belonged to the Royal Air Force, didn't it? One staff it had at one been, point, yeah. Yeah. Um, one staff had been demobbed in the same building said, I'm in it again mobilized into another air force ah very clever good. Like, good, and in fact good. like military titles they used when they greeted each other uh around you know around the mm. place because it was mostly men there were women working there but it was mostly men yeah um and i really like this fact that like reith himself kept flitting between captain and major because uh, apparently there was some disputes with the war office on which he actually was that sounds like uh, <laughs> okay just making it up and, and there's this lovely quote from um, Morris Gorham, who was someone who joined the BBC in 1926. And um, he said, I mean, it's really sad, but I just, he said that quite a lot of them suffered shell shock. You never quite knew how they would react. And quite a lot of them drank. There were always some of my colleagues with whom it was never safe to do any business after lunch. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, that actually sounds like BBC Radio Light Entertainment. You got cheap, you got cheap uh, subsidised booze in the BBC Club, and so, so there'd be quite a few producers, you know, spending the afternoons down there. It sounds yeah, like, except I don't uh, think they had, you know, PTSD. No, no, but we had lived through flares and glam rock. So <laughs> it sounds like a gloriously bonkers place to work. It does. It sounds like it was exciting and thrilling, and they yeah. were at this sort of vanguard of this new exciting thing. Yes, in 1923, actually, the. Um, uh, the Duchess of York, who became uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, she got married. And I remember reading that there was a suggestion that the whole thing was broadcast, you know, live on the radio. And it was the, the marriage of the Duchess should be uh, on the airways. And then in the end, they decided this couldn't happen because there might be men listening in, in public houses who refused to take off their hats. <laughs> We can't have that. We, we can't, can't have that. Imagine it. Listening to the wireless when the Queen and Mother's getting married. Oh, no, she wasn't the Queen Mother then, was she? Duchess of York, yeah. Duchess of York was getting married and leaving their hats on. Still that would be terrible. That's terrible. terrible. Yes. Wow. But that was the year the Radio Times was uh, launched, 1923. Yeah. Um, and then, so that's that's got its centenary next year. Yeah. And by the end of 1924, they'd gone from the 30 or 40 employees they'd had at the start of 1923 to having over 400 employees so it really was growing quickly 
1925, they opened the Daventry transmitter. So that's in Northamptonshire. And it's the world's first AM long wave transmitting station. So that brings the listening distance to now cover 94% of the country. From so it's the first steps really to having a national single broadcaster. It can yes, reach yes. almost the entire country. So John Reith is general manager. He was pretty dictatorial, wasn't he? In January 26, yeah. he imposed this dress code on the BBC radio announcers who had to wear dinner jackets in the evening as a mark of respect towards the performers who were also obliged to dress formally. Yeah, well, because performers, you know, were dressed formally, the the singers or whatever they had come in would be dressed formally. He said the announcers had to be as well. So it's, yes. it's and his Reithian principles are still well known today to inform, educate and entertain, um, which is also, yes. of course, a brilliant album by public service broadcasting. Um, um, so 1926, you have the general strike and the BBC, the BBC stays operational. Uh, when lots of newspapers uh, aren't being printed, of course. Churchill yeah. actually lobbied Stanley Baldwin, the Prime Minister, to commandeer the BBC. Mm. But Reith stood his ground. He knew that the BBC's impartiality would be destroyed forever if he allowed that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. It was a really big deal at that time. And I think he later went on, Reith, to say that he regretted that they didn't have more of the trade union movement voices oh, really? on okay. the airwaves, actually. Yeah. Uh, then in 1927... The BBC was established by Royal Charter as the British Broadcasting Corporation, as we know it today. Right. So Sir John Reith becomes the first director general of the BBC and the first BBC charter uh, defines the, their objectives, powers and obligations. So what, what was the thinking behind that? Do you know why they said it can't be a company, it should be a corporation? I suppose to have some regulation, to have some... Um, make it not a business. Make it not a business, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And then, and of what course, next? well, then, of course, two years later in 1929, a certain John Logie Baird starts using the BBC frequencies to test some of his first experimental television broadcasts from studios near Covent Garden. So the first BBC produced experimental TV broadcast went out on the 22nd of August, 1932. It's all moving so quickly. Ten, isn't it? Within 10 years, it had gone from yeah. first radio broadcast to first TV broadcast. It's incredible. And from that moment until today, the BBC ticks along, not causing any controversy, and every British person loves it unconditionally. Absolutely, John. That's exactly <laughs> right. It's interesting that they saw the need for government regulation. Um, mm. But if you look at it's quite interesting to compare what happened with the internet a century next, you know, century later. Look at Twitter now. A huge global medium, and it's all in the hands of one man, and all going horribly wrong. Yeah, and, you know, the internet really was a wild west, and perhaps that's why politics went so wrong, and so many false narratives were set running, and we had what happened in, you know, with Trump, Brexit, Bolsonaro, Hungary, all these sort of whole separate worlds being created where there was unregulated lies being put out. Maybe yeah. that could have happened with with broadcasting in the nineteen twenties, but they managed yeah. to it. I suppose the difference is access, isn't it? Is that literally everybody had access to the internet yeah it's unregulated whereas you had to have i don't know you had to have a knowledge of the technology i suppose to access it in the early days of radio i don't know yeah i, I know. suppose interesting, just an interesting comparison yeah. there for, yeah uh, to, no, to bring absolutely. it bang up to bang up to topicality with yeah. Elon Musk. uh so if it had been the twitter corporation maybe it would have been a bit better uh maybe. and it would have been regulated and licensed yeah but anyway, that's a very interesting look back at the establishment of the BBC. Angela, thank you for leading me through that. Uh, what was the name no of the problem. book again that you used? The that's book is, oh my goodness, now you put me on the spot. It um, is a BBC, A People's History by David Hendy. Oh, it's got a good cover, isn't it, with Daleks on the it's front. It's got Daleks on the front, so that should make our more uh, nerdy friends. Yeah. About. No, it's really, it's a really interesting read. And obviously, like I say, we've only looked at the first two chapters of it for this. So yeah. it goes right through the history of the BBC. Um, up to yes, the present I, day. I, I did dip into a book called The New Noise by Charlotte Higgins, which is also uh, uh, interesting. If this uh, subject makes you want to read more books. Yeah. Um, we'll that's be... all from this week. That's all from this week. That's all. That's just a proper <laughs> BBC. That's all. BBC is closing down now. And so there's going to be the national love... anthem. Actually, we should end this episode with the national anthem. And everyone sorry, sorry, John. John hasn't had his pills today. He thinks he's on the BBC. Um I'm not going to disavow him of that notion because, you know, it would just upset him. We just let him think that yeah. that's what he's doing. <laughs> There's going to be uh, the national anthem and then some, a long 
beep and then you'll wake up and think oh, I should have gone to bed hours ago <laughs> <laughs> oh thank you for listening and again thanks to our new listeners um please do go on to the old iTunes if that's how you're listening to us and um yep. subscribe give us a five-star review we've had some lovely reviews people been saying nice things about my yeah. mum about yeah somebody said a nice thing about John's mum that oh. when when she's on the uh when she features on the podcast we should get an extra star which I think is lovely oh, um we will soul. be back next week with another episode of We Are History. But until then, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at We Are History Pod. I've got uh, that right, haven't I? I, I, have, I yeah, I, and, yeah uh, I doubted myself then for a second. If, if Twitter's still there next week. Yeah, if not, um, Mastodon. Are we going to have to try and work that out, John? Oh, oh my God. God, help us. Oh my God. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye.